This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That absolute honour to be joined on Football CFB by one of the very best goalkeepers of the Premier League era. This man has played for Liverpool, Blackburn Rovers, Aston Villa and Tottenham, also in spells abroad as well, notably Galatasaray, Bronby and of course Columbus Crew as well. I am of course talking to the United States international Brad Friedel. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, you got it, Colin. How's everything? I'm, I'm very good, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Brad. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is the start of your career was was unique in the sense that you were playing in the college system in America, and there was a lot of teams interested in you within England and even in Scotland, I believe, but work permits appeared to be an issue at first. Yeah, it was a big issue. Um, it, was, uh, it, it was difficult for in, any player... Uh, any young player to obviously have 75% of your national team games played, and especially so a goalkeeper. Um, it's a position where generally, um, I mean, not always, uh, there are cases where younger goalkeepers uh, become their country's number ones, but it's uh, generally a, a position that is taken up by an elder statesman, so to speak. So um, I uh, I always felt for the first, I think, three to three to four years, I always felt um, way short of that 75% um, barrier. So I, I couldn't sign for um, Nottingham Forest. I couldn't sign for um, for Newcastle. I couldn't sign for Sunderland. Um, and a Sheffield Wednesday was interested at one stage. Southampton was interested at one stage. And then finally, Liverpool, um, the first time around, was denied. And then we, uh, and Liverpool finally uh, was able to get it through um, on an appeal process because I was very, very close to the uh, 75%. And before we talk about Liverpool, you played in, in Danish football, you were at Bronby, but you were also at Galatasaray where you worked with Graham Souness for the first time. What was that season in Turkey like? Because the Galatasaray fans are known for their, their incredible passion. Yeah, it was a wonderful time in my life, to be, uh, to be honest. It was, um, it, it was an incredible, incredibly different environment from what I was brought up and raised in. Uh, it taught me a lot about uh, the cultural differences, religious differences in the world. I, found, um, I still have some incredibly good friends uh, today from, from my time at Galatasaray. The fans were amazing. I had a good, great relationship with the fans. Um, Graham Sunis was there at the first season and the start of the second season. It was a Fatih Terum. And uh, Fatih was a uh, was a tremendous manager. Also, I mean, his history speaks for itself with how with how well he's done um, over the years. Uh, atmospheres are uh, are just simply remarkable. Um, if you can play, uh, if you can play in the Galatasaray Fenerbahce derby, and this doesn't mean you know necessarily it's not the quality of football that your Real Madrid Barcelona is. I understand that. But I'm just talking from a just a pure sense of um, of the energy and the demands that are put on players. Uh, it's it's right up there with the with the biggest one of the biggest pressure cookers that's alive in the game today. And uh, it was just it was just a fantastic fantastic time. And um, you know it always helps when you're playing well, and it always helps when the fans like you. Of course, I mean because in Turkey, if the fans don't like you, your life isn't. Uh, isn't so well, which, you know, a few, I saw that up, up close and personal with a few of my teammates. So, um, but for me, it was just a, a wonderful time all around. And, uh, and, and I really enjoyed living in Istanbul and really enjoyed the club itself. You had success by winning the Turkish Cup. Just sum up what it was like being in and around the club when you win such a historic competition in Turkey. Um. It, I mean, it makes it makes life a uh, heck of a lot easier. That's for sure. Um, and the uh, you know to say, for instance, uh, a gentleman who owned a le an electronics store, you know, the next day just brought a truck 
to the training ground and basically every player could just pick one thing out of the back of the truck because <laughs> <laughs> it was just a random supporter um who, who drove up you know it's just a different uh a different way of uh, different way of life really is um when you and not only did we win the Turkish cup, but we won it on Fenerbahce's ground. And, and then Graham Sunis was also, uh, he put the Galatasaray flag in the middle of the pitch on the game and still, uh, still an iconic picture in, uh, in, in the, uh, in the minds and the hearts of Galatasaray fans and to be involved in such a prestigious game uh, and, and with so much history now involved in it, uh, it was remarkable. And in, in terms of your career coming to England, was that something that was always an ambition for you? Because I imagine maybe it was different back then, but growing up, were you aware of the English game compared to other major leagues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up in growing up in Cleveland, there were only two teams really that were ever on TV, and it wasn't a lot, and that was Bayern Munich and Liverpool. And I can't even tell you today like why those two teams – I know they're outstanding clubs, but why they were on – like who even did the television rights at all back then because it wasn't it wasn't as if I don't even think I we had cable in the house uh, back then so um, I went on a family holiday when I think I was 10 or 11 years old and my dad took me to a, um, a Liverpool West Ham game and I started supporting Liverpool from that from that stage I never really uh, you know I didn't get a lot of information on them there, there we only had two forms of publications back then for soccer one was called soccer digest and the other soccer america and I didn't get that much information on the leagues but I tried to get as much as I possibly could and you go into your uh, your your soccer stores over in the states and you could try to get as much memorabilia as you possibly can but most of that stuff you had to order um, and it took some time to get in, but, but yeah, the English game always, always fit my, sort of my characteristics as a goalkeeper, the English game always, I always perceive that and people can have their own view on what football they like and what football they dislike. It was just the type of football that I really enjoyed and how physical it was and fast it was and things of that nature. It was just, um, it was just a place that I always wanted to play. And in terms of going to Liverpool, you went in there when, when David James was at the club. Um, he, he was playing lots and lots of games at that point. What's it like going into a club where you know that you have to really compete for that number one jersey because there's already a number one in place? Well, I'd already been seasoned to battle for my position. That's something that Ziggy did uh, with us at UCLA and then obviously with the national teams with uh, playing against uh, competing against Tony Miola and... Um, and also Casey Keller for, for years. So I, I, I didn't expect to go in and, uh, and automatically be, be the guy, you know, with it just being given to me. Um, uh, David and I get along uh, quite well nowadays. Um, we didn't back then as much, not that we were you know, fighting or anything, but he didn't like the fact that they had signed another goalkeeper. Um, I didn't like the fact that I wasn't getting all the playing time. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting little time. Um, you know, as we were competing, um, what I will say is, uh, um, on his day, I mean, JMO was was one of the was one of the best. I, I mean, I've not really, I've not played with too many other people in my um, in my club teams that have a physique like him and are as strong as him. And I knew there was going to be a battle on uh, on my hands from day one. But you have to expect that when you go to the biggest clubs in the world. Um, there's always going to be there's always going to be um, people fighting, uh, fighting for your places as it should be. You know, there, there shouldn't be any other way and you shouldn't expect it any other way. You mentioned that Liverpool were one of the clubs that you were able to watch on TV back in Cleveland. What was it like when you made your debut for the club against Aston Villa? Because I imagine that was a moment because of the nature of that club being on television and being so well known that it must have been one of the proudest moments of your life, really. Yeah, it, it it really was. I mean, um, you know, I think the leading up to it was, I, I forget who we played at home, maybe Coventry at home. Um, I'd have to look back uh, in the in the books, and um, the result didn't either go away, or or maybe uh, JMO made a mistake that game. But uh, Roy Evans turned around to me and goes, "You be ready, you're playing next game." And so from that point on, you know, the excitement through the week was uh, was big. 
Um, I, but then I've always, I've always had the mind where I could t- shut everything off come game time. So, you know, once you're, once you're playing, then you, you, so you, you know, you'd never forget that you're playing for Liverpool, but you just concentrate on the match itself. And um, it had been a couple of months since I had signed for the club from getting the debut. So it wasn't as if I had just, uh, you know, I had just flown over and, and got, you know, put on the pitch after a week. So I was able to, get, you know, navigate around, you know, what, what the club really was and what it meant to people and things of that nature. But yeah, a very, very special moment of my life uh, debuting for Liverpool. In terms of your time at Liverpool, how do you reflect upon it? Because ultimately, it leads you to joining Graham Souness again at Blackburn this time in 2000. If you look back in the, in the history of my career, and I, I've said this in many interviews, and I have no idea, I have no idea why. I, I really don't. I've tried it because I'm not a nervous person. I, I don't, um, you know, a lot of things don't phase me in life. Um, and... Uh, it was the most inconsistent I had ever played for my first three months at Liverpool. And um, I, I really don't know why. It wasn't it, looking back. I've always ch- relished in competition. I've never shied away from a challenge. I never, you know, like it, it, I just don't know. I didn't, I didn't endear myself um, into the coaching staff and the fans as this was the guy. And it was the only club that really ever happened at. Um, and, it, it just became a you know, start stop to my career there. And then when Gerard Houllier was given the reins on his own, um, he paid quite a bit of money for Sander Westerveld and then the writing was on the wall. So it wasn't as if I wanted to leave Liverpool. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any players who ever want to leave Liverpool um, because the club is such a, um, a massive and incredible club, but I needed to leave Liverpool to play. Um, and there were offers from other clubs that uh, that Rick Perry and Gerard Houllier turned down at the time, um, but uh, uh, but they accepted. I think I, I would assume primarily because Blackburn was in the championship at the time, so um, they agreed to letting me go, and and the rest is history. And then, you know, and things are meant to be, and I, I had an incredible time at Blackburn. You know, and uh, you know I played under two really really good managers and Graham Sunis and Mark Hughes and we had we had very good teams for the eight and a half years that I was there so I can't complain how it all went but that's um that's what really transpired to leave uh, to leave Liverpool. You're so well known for playing in the Premier League as you you are aware of but people sometimes forget that that first season at Blackburn you were in the championship and then obviously the club wins promotion to the Premier League what was it like playing in the championship? Was it is it is it a league that's different to play in as a goalkeeper compared to the Premier League? Absolutely, it's uh, I found the quality is obviously better in the Premier League. Um, and when you, when you're facing the top top strikers, they give they give you a lot less chance of saving in certain situations. So of course, but the championship's a hard league. It is that is not an easy league physically, um, and playing every weekend and then. And then midweek, virtually throughout the entire season, it's it, you 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 have to go through your preseason and make sure you're fit, and then you've got to keep your fitness up. And it's a maintenance thing because you very rarely through the uh, through the season do you just get that free that free um, week of training. <laughs> it, it just doesn't. It. I mean, I'm sure looking back on it, um, we did, but it sure didn't feel like it as we were going through it. That's for sure. It is, um, it is tough. And teams, teams are very even and very equal in the championship. And a lot of the games are one on uh, momentum. And once you get that momentum going through the season, you know, you just sort of, we, we got to a point, I think right around Christmas time, or maybe just before we started just not losing any games, even if we, even if we were playing poorly, I mean, Damian Duff and Matt Jansen were incredible that season. You could be playing poorly, and you know Duffer would take the ball seventy yards and either set up or score himself. And it was, it just you gain confidence. But what it was a hard league, you know, for Henningberg and Craig Short, um, who were primarily my two center backs during that championship time. Um, I tell you, it is hard the amount of balls you have to head away and the amount of hard challenges you go into. And then when you go up to the Premier League. Um, it's still hard. It's still fast. It's still physical, but there's a lot more finesse involved in it. 
you mentioned the fact that the finesse is involved. As a promoted club, no matter how big the club is, normally everyone assumes that the aim is just to stay up. But for that first season back in the Premier League under Graham, you finished 10th and crucially won the League Cup. Just what was Graham like as a manager? Because we all know what he was like as a player. Obviously, the, the situation we've talked about in Galatasaray with the flag. What, what was he like when you get back into the Premier League and overall? Because he's a character who very passionate about football, it's, it's fair to say. Yeah, and I, I think people would be surprised if, um, if they were actually managed by Graham. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, he did not shy away from a, a confrontation. Um, but with the way that I found Graham is if, if you gave 100%, no matter your ability, um, he would treat you with the utmost respect. And even if it meant you getting out of the club or needing to leave the club because you weren't playing, he would treat you with a great deal of respect. And I would assume like meeting him later on in life, he would, he would um, really like that person as long as you gave a hundred percent. What he had a real difficult time with was were people that did not give their all, um, you know, and would go through the motion sometimes and be on big money. And, 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 and I think that's fair as a manager, not to, not to enjoy that. So, um, you know, and when when he was confronted with that, <laughs> then you met then you met a different side of uh, Graham, which you know all players who played for him saw you know saw that from time to time because not every player out there in the world works you know works as hard as they possibly should or could. So um, I think one of the reasons why he and I got along so well was because um, I'd never shied away from a day's work for him. You know, and if if I made a mistake, which of course I made mistakes while I was playing for him, um, they were honest mistakes. They were they were mistakes just you know that happen in everyday, everyday and everyday footballer's life. But um, I think he had confidence in me that I would work hard on the training ground to to fix it. And in terms of that League Cup success, on the run-up to the final, which was obviously in Cardiff rather than Wembley, um, you, you win 4-0 against Arsenal in the quarter-finals. Was that a real turning point where the squad felt that this could be your year? Well, could you repeat that question? Sorry, we just cut out a little bit. So in terms of that League Cup campaign where you win the League Cup, you beat Arsenal 4-0 in the quarter-finals. Was that a big turning point for the squad where you thought we're in with a real chance this season? I don't know what, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you a third time, um, which should be, uh, okay, now I've got you. Just repeat that, repeat that one more time. You beat Arsenal 4-0 in the quarterfinal of the League Cup that season. Was that a turning point uh, where you felt that the club he, were on the track? Yeah, possibly. Um, and we, that was when we were going into, um, that's when we were going into the, uh, we had the League Cup run and we found ourselves with, I think, three or four games in hand at the time that we made it to the final, but we were, um, we were in the relegation zone. I think we were third from bottom um, because of, uh, with those games in hand that we had and we were playing teams like uh, Ipswich and perhaps even a Bolton, um, maybe Fulham, I'm not really sure because that was the year that uh, all three promoted all three promoted clubs stayed up. Um, so we, um, that, that, I don't know if that was, it would be a turning point, but it was definitely a, um, you know, a time, a time where we, where we knew that we could um, mix it with the big boys, but keep in mind as well, one thing at Graham, and when I say Graham, you also have to say John Williams and, and Tom Finn and, and the likes, and, you know, the board at Blackburn, allowed in the championship was there's a lot of Premier League players came into the club. So when we did promote, it wasn't as if players hadn't had Premier League experience. So, you know, the signing of uh, John Curtis, the signing of Stig Bjornaby, the signing of uh, Craig Short, of Henningberg, of my of myself, um, you know, in the Premier League, two guy came in, but Gary Flickcroft was, was there who had played in both. David Dunn had played in both. Damian Duff had played in both. Matt Jansen, who was getting called into the England team. Like we had, we did have Premier League players um, at the club. So um, I think all of us uh, knew once we got into the Premier League that we could do it, but then you have to go out and prove it. Um, and there was, a, there was a time during that first season where 
we were drawing games, nil-nil, 1-1, losing 1-0 at home um, into your Middlesbroughs and stuff like that. And it, it got precariously close at one stage. But then come the end of the season, I, I think we were safe with um, – got to say five or six games to play and won the Worthington cup. Um, you know, so it was, it ended up being quite a comfortable season for us. In terms of the league cup final against Tottenham, what are your memories of that day? Well, leading up to it, we had a tremendous amount and a, a tremendous amount of injuries. And I believe a couple of suspensions, um, uh, memory serves me correct. Mark Hughes played in the center of midfield, um, that day. And did an incredible job. Um, we had, and Tottenham had a fully fully loaded squad. And Tottenham Tottenham's team was was very very strong then. Um, we we obviously no, no matter who came out and played, you know we we were confident in our ability, but we also knew that there were going to be times in that in that game that we were going to have to weather the storm. And and as it turned out, it was pretty much weather in a storm for ninety minutes. Um, but I'll also say we had um, you know, Graham at his disposal and, and the board. They always allowed uh, great signings. And when Andy Cole came into the club and we still had Matt Jansen and Yorkie came, I think, the year after, Roca Santa Cruz, Craig Bellamy. Like we, we always had guys that could score goals. Um, and Benny McCarthy's and Coley. And, you know, Coley came up, you know, massive in that, uh, in that game. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I don't think on the – day we were the better team I don't think we were you know completely outplayed or out, outmatched but um, you know it was just one of those days and uh, again a great memory. One of the things that's unique about you Brad you're one of the few goalkeepers to score a goal in the Premier League just talk me through what that was like. Well we were losing 2-1 uh, at the Valley and I went up for a corner and uh, the ball went way over my head and um, and we um, and it just like deflected into my path and I put it in with my left foot. The only issue was, is that um, about, I don't know, a minute and a half later, um, we didn't even touch the ball again. And uh, the ball uh, looped over, over my head and into the far side of the net and we lost three, two. So I don't really talk about it too much. <laughs> because if, if we had drawn two, two, um, I would talk to you all day, all day long about scoring the goal. But um, but we lost. So uh, you know, whether whether I scored or didn't score, um, you know, we lost the game. So I just I really didn't like speaking about it because it, every time I talk about it, then someone says, "Oh, so you must have drawn the game because you went up at the end." I said, "No, we lost in the last kick." As you say, an incredible sort of thing. As you've said, the fact you scored and then it's it's not enough in the end, but. We've talked there about Graham Souness. What was Mark Hughes like when he came in to replace Graham? Because another man like Graham who had an incredible history as a player. Yeah, Mark, um, so it was a real interesting one for me because Mark, I played with Mark at Blackburn for two years as well. Um, a re completely different type of manager than Graham. You know, Graham, um, Graham weighed heavily on signing of, of signing of good players and then and then trusting the players uh, to to be just that to be good, you know. And the um, whereas whereas Mark took a, a little bit more of a scientific approach. And one thing I've learned, um, you know, a lot more on the a lot more on the stats, uh, um, a lot more on uh, the way we trained and things of that nature. Um, one thing I have learned over the years is there's absolutely not one right or wrong way. There's many, there's many different ways that can all be right. Um, it, it just, it just depends on the staff that you have and your philosophies and then getting the right players uh, through the door that will adapt to your way of thinking. So, you know, Mark played under Graham for, uh, for all the time that I was there. Uh, so for, with, um, you know, with Graham and then Mark uh, shortly took, shortly took over um, uh, I think he was, he was Wales head coach. I'm, I'm not sure for how long, but, um, but I remember John Williams asking me uh, what I thought about Mark Hughes. And I said, absolutely. I know he's young. I know he's relatively inexperienced, you know, as far as a manager, but I mean, Mark Hughes was experienced, he was an experienced guy, experienced player, had been at the top clubs around the globe. 
um, was one of the very best number nines that was out there. Um, and, and he had already um, cut his teeth with the Wells job. Um, he had no problem dealing with the big egos, no problem being around um, big guys. Cause he was one of the, he was one of the biggest. So um, completely different type of manager, but very, very good. And overall, how do you reflect in that spell at Blackburn? Because not only were you a player who the fans admired and you're now in the Hall of Fame, but for the majority of your time there, Blackburn were a really strong top 10 club, a few sixth place finishes, obviously the League Cup success. And you also played, as you've mentioned, with some real greats of football, Dwight York, Andy Cole, Two Guy, and so many others. Just so I imagine for you, you're reflecting that in a really positive light because when you see where the club are now, that was a real golden era for them. It, it truly was. I, I mean, um, I, I can't speak of what really went happened really happened after I'd left because I was I wasn't there. Um, the club that I know was a remarkable club, a family club. You know, not not uh, not global recognition, not um, you know, not even probably national recognition to the point of some of the other clubs. But um, during the time I was there, and I, I think if you if you phoned up any of the other players they would say one of the best run football clubs that they'd ever played at during that time when um, it was run by uh, the uh, Walker Trust. As, as, as I say, I think really when you look at how well the club, as you've said there, were run, that was shown on the park with the, with the incredible finishes. And in terms of yourself, why was Aston Villa the next step for you? Aston Villa and um, Manchester City came in for me. So when Mark Hughes went to Man City, um, they came in also. The the issue, the issue that um, that I was having was this was at a time where Manchester City they hadn't completed their purchase um, or the sale of the club, and uh, you have to forgive me. I, I think it was Shinawatra was the owner, yeah. I, I believe, and I, I and. Um, I'm not trying to uh, speak like I know the situation. I just know that there was some financial instability there. When I went down and met with um, with Randy Lerner and Martin O'Neill, um, it was very apparent. You deal with Martin O'Neill. He was the manager. He was doing the contracts. Randy owned the Cleveland Browns. I was from Cleveland. Paul Faulkner was the uh, chief exec, very personable. It, you just went down there and it was really organized at the time. I would have loved to have uh, matched up with um, with Mark Hughes again, uh, you know. But um, and on top of that, I had also asked the club of Blackburn if finally, like, if we. I've heard a lot of rumors if we were now a selling club, and the answer that came back to me was not only are we a selling club, but you know, as far as players, but we are trying actively selling the club, and and that was really that was really the the catalyst for me. Um, for me moving. I mean, and, and I think, you know, the club got me on a free transfer uh, from Liverpool. I think after I played um, 300 games or something like that, they had to pay 300 grand. And um, I, I believe they ended up having to pay it, but it was, it was cheap. And I think they got something like 2.75 million or 3 million um, for a 37 year old, you know, and we had great success. So I hope I did right by the club, but um you know, I, I guess that's in the, uh, that'll be in the fans' minds. What was it like playing at Villa Park? Because just like the spell you had with Blackburn, the spell you had at Aston Villa was equally as impressive. Sixth place finishes, really pushing for that top four, getting to a League Cup final and under Martin O'Neill, a Villa side that troubled all of the big teams. Yeah, and the, the, the first year, I mean, we were, we were close. We, um, I think we were we were one striker away, you know, and and the difficulty was, uh, you know, what type of striker because you didn't want to upset, you know, really what was happening, um, and it, maybe not even a striker. We were we were like ten goals, if you, if you like, away from being maybe even in the top two or three that season. It, uh, we had a really super team, um, and Martin o, Martin O'Neill. Um, it's very, very uh, charismatic character. Um, and, uh, you know, looking back on the time, it, it was, again, a remarkable learning experience to play for, to play for him. Um, Brian Clough was the, uh, the first, uh, 
the first person to sign me. And although I never got to play for him, I met him and I was there for a few months. Uh, and, and I know I didn't get to uh, be around him in his, in his heyday. Um, but they're very, you know, very similar in, in some things from what I saw. And, and we just, we had a really good, really good team, a really competitive, really hard to play against big, strong, physical. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were, we were close a couple of seasons and, you know, I, I wish, uh, you know, looking back on it, that he didn't have his, uh, his falling out with, uh, with Randy. Um, it was right at the beginning of the season. Uh, and we went into a little bit of uh, turmoil for a couple of months. Um, and then when Gerard took over, uh, everything, everything was getting back, uh, back around and then Gerard fell ill. So it was just the last, the third season was a little bit, um, was a little bit, uh, tougher, but, uh, but nonetheless, I mean, what again? If people ask me, like, you know, did you ever play at a bad club? And and the question or the answer to the question is no, I didn't. Um, the way that the people in Aston Villa treated me, and the way that the club treated all their players, the training ground, the facilities, the stadium, pitches, the, everything was was really good. Um, you know, and and it was three fantastic years. It really was. One of the players I really want to ask you about, one of your teammates, is Gareth Barry. He's, he's recently uh -huh. retired from football. Just how yeah. good a footballer was he? Because for me, although he was rated by so many, I actually think in a way he was underrated and underappreciated by fans, not of Aston Villa, but fans of other clubs. Yeah, he was he, he, superb, superb, superb left foot. Um, he... Uh, and and he could he could play various positions. Um, very very difficult to keep him uh, out of any side. Um, and then you also see uh, how how long he played as an outfield player. I mean, as a goalkeeper, it's one thing, um, but as an outfield player to play for as long as he did uh, is truly remarkable. And um, and he's also he was also the name the name and the face of the club. Um, uh, name at the face of a uh, the club for for many years just because of how long he served at the club. Um, you know, I think it, it got to a point where the money in the contracts that he was being offered elsewhere were just, were just too were just too big, um, and he and he had to go for it. And and that's you know I don't think any Aston Villa fan should be upset with him for doing it. Um, and you know, just what a very, very, very good player, very good leader, and very good teammate. One of the things that always fascinates me about your career, Brad, three hundred and ten consecutive Premier League games. Just sum up how you achieved that, because you hear so many managers, um, players, sometimes saying, "Oh, they could do with a rest." Like to rotate goalkeepers every so often, but for you, I imagine you just wanted to play in every single football match. Every game, every training, every game. Um, you know, it was one of my frustrations a little bit when I became a manager was players always wanting a rest, always wanting a rest. And I, my comment to them, I said, guys, you're going to get to a point in your career where all you're going to get is rest. Like, it, like, cause you're going to be retired. And, you know, I, I just, it took me so long to get into the Premier League. Um, there was no way that I was going to just allow somebody to to go in and play because I wanted to go to the head coach and say I was tired. You know, of course there were times I was tired. I mean, let's face it, goalkeepers in the games aren't going to get tired. Or, you know, aren't going to get physically tired like an outfield player. But there were times that my body was beaten up. There were times that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't hardly walk down the stairs. But I was still gonna, I was still gonna play. You know, and and that's just how I, that's just how I, um, you know, sort of ran my career. I was, I was just never not going to play like that that's how and you know unfortunate enough i played with managers that also like the way i played and you know so I, I was as long as i kept myself fit i was getting you know being lucky enough to being called upon and you know, and yes yes i made my spare share of mistakes of course and as i got older you know my game had to change a little bit especially with regards to crosses and things of that nature but i um you know, I tried to adapt and I tried to be as consistent as I possibly could. 
from Aston Villa to Tottenham, Harry Redknapp, the manager. For you, Brad, you were at an age in your career, I know goalkeepers can play a lot longer, but you, you were at an age even when you joined Tottenham where some people would think, right, I think he's going to start winding down now. But again, in that first season, that was not the case. You were the club's number one goalkeeper. Yeah, and it was an interesting... Uh, it was an interesting... Uh, hold on real quick. It was an interesting time um, because I got to 40 and I thought that I was going to be retired. And... I ended up getting offers from four clubs at 40, and I still felt incredibly fit. And, you know, this is where I have a lot of admiration for Tottenham because, and I know Daniel, Daniel Levy gets, uh, you know, his fair share of uh, criticism for, you know, how, how he negotiates. But I always found the negotiations with Daniel very, 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 probably hard, but very honest. Um, they were looking for a long-term replacement. At no time did I ever think a 40-year-old was going to be the long-term number one. He said, we'll give you a two-year contract. The first year, we'll be looking at you to come in and play. And all the while, we are going to try to find the long-term replacement. And that's when they started, um, you know, and obviously they were recruiting Hugo at the time. And I said, fantastic. Um, and then I also got to start my uh, coaching badges at Tottenham. And had a great relationship with John McDermott there. And then, uh, and I, I, I had a good relationship with all the head coaches from, uh, from Harry to, to Andre, to Tim, and then to, uh, to Mauricio. So it, it was, it ended up being uh, sort of the perfect way to end my career. You're at a, you're at a top club that is slowly becoming a champions league club. Um, new stadium being built, new training ground was built. Um, was able to do my UEFA B, my UEFA A, and my pro license, um, and still be training every day up until the age of 44. Uh, you know, so it, for me, it was uh, it was perfect uh, a perfect way to end uh, end my career. And in terms of that spell, you talk about being the number one. When Hugo Lloris comes in and you know that he's going to be the long-term number one, how did you adapt to that role, considering that you had played week in, week out for many, many years? Well, the, the funny thing about that, and uh, you can uh, you'll have to speak to Andre Villas-Boas about uh, about things. Um, I, I I think at the end of it, Andre was a little bit surprised at how fit Carlo Cudicini and myself were, and we also had um, a very good shot stopper at the club in uh, Herelio Gomez. So I think after the preseason, um, Andre wanted wanted different players, <laughs> I think. So, and I had started the season and Hugo came in, I think, you know, round about the last day of the uh, transfer window. So, and as it turned out, I started, I started that season playing very well. And I, and I know I, what, what, I was 41 years of age, but, but I was playing, I was playing well. And when Hugo came in, I always had a really good relationship with Hugo. And, you know, and I know he was frustrated when he first came because he was France's number one, Leon's number one. Um, uh, I'm not sure if he was captain at the time. I'm sure he, he I mean, because he shortly became France's captain and uh, um, and I think he was captain at Lyon and all of a sudden he's playing behind a 41-year-old. Um, and, you know, I just told him that, listen, you, you're going to be the number one guy here. There's no way they're going to have me as a long-term number one at a club like Tottenham that's going for Champions League places. I said, it's just not going to happen long-term, you know, and, 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 you know, it was a few, it was about a month or two later. And then, uh, and then uh, they put it, they put him in and the rest is history. But for me to adapt to it, it, it was not difficult it, because I knew it was coming. Um, that's why the communication is key. You know, I, I was a little bit upset with, with Andre and this is, that was open with him on it when, um, when he uh, when he told me I wasn't playing against Aston Villa at home because we had just we had just beaten the Man United for the first time at Old Trafford and I forget I don't know how many years twenty five years or something of that nature and and he uh, he dropped he dropped me um, so Hugo could play a game before he went into the France international game and that stopped my run at three ten I was a little disappointed with that of course but he, I, I mean I I always knew that Hugo was going to be 
you know, eventually the number one guy. In terms of your career, so many records in terms of uh, the consecutive appearances, um, clean sheets, and also being the oldest ever player at a few clubs and in the Premier League. When those records start to creep up, Brad, about oldest player at a club or oldest player in the league, how do you feel? Does it make you feel proud or does it irritate you in the sense that you know what it's like? People always go, right, how, many, how long are you going to go on for? Yeah, it makes you feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, every year the the squads get younger and younger and younger. Uh, you know, there were some uh, like League Cup games, some uh, preseason games, and things like that where I was forty three years of age, I believe. I mean, when Tim Sherwood was the manager, I played. I think Hugo either got injured, maybe concussion or something like that, or hurt. He got injured, and I played over in Ukraine, um, and then I played again away in. Uh, in Portugal against Benfica. And I think when I played, there's a starting 11 thing that went out in the news. I think three or four of the players hadn't even been bored yet, uh, born yet when I made my professional debut. Wow. You know, you'd have to look that up. It was us against Benfica, I think it was. You know, like uh, Zeki Friars and guys like that were, were playing. I don't think they were born yet. Or maybe, you know, they were there one Roberto Soldado, I think was like six or seven or something like that, you know? So, um, you know, you, you're, you're looking around and, um, and I know I was, I was there. I could still play though. I was still fit. You know, I just, I mean, I wasn't agile like a Hugo, um, but I could still play. Uh, but I was really focused more on my coaching at that time. I have to ask you, of course, about your incredible international career. Played at World Cups, got to the quarterfinal of a World Cup as well. How fondly do you look back in representing the US? Because football in the US, or, or soccer, obviously, as it's, 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 they say over there, really has grown in the decades that you were playing, and even now continues to grow when you look at players like Christian Pulisic and others coming through. Yeah, we were... Um... There was a little group before us, um, Roy Wegerly's, um, Tom Dooley's, Tab Ramos's, um, and then right shortly after that, myself, Claudio Reyna, um, Casey Keller, Joe Max Moore, um, John O'Brien, uh, Steve Chirondolo. So then we came, we came over, and that was at a time where social media had started to pick up, and people there was a bit more notoriety around around things, and I think we helped pave the way for quite a few people. Brian McBride and Carlos Bocanegra came over after Eddie Lewis came over, um, you know, and it, and it, uh, it started, it started to uh, help with the help with things. I mean, playing for your country is, uh, is remarkable. Um, playing for the country when I was at Galatasaray, it was tough because we didn't back then the U S didn't play their games on international fixture days. So I got to a point if I was going to get the, caps and to be able to sign for Liverpool I needed to go back and play those games and I was going to miss something like 12 12 or 16 games I, I can't remember exactly from Galatasaray's schedule um, and then the fans wouldn't have forgiven me for that so I went on loan to Columbus Crew so I could get the game like you know there's a lot of flying and a lot of um, back and forth and I actually ended my international career quite early right after the 2002 World Cup I uh, didn't announce it but I only played one more game in 2004, and a lot of that was due to um, the uh, just the, the long flights back, and you know we were in a lot of battles with the federation over uh, pay disputes, and I was usually on the committees for that. It became it became quite stressful going back and forth, but I also like to look back on it. And, you know, we were we were a generation that really helped the the current crop of players now. Why do you think the U.S. has produced so many top goalkeepers? Of course, yourself, Casey Keller, Tim Howard, so many others over the years as well. You just think to yourself, it's quite amazing that, uh, that any nation can produce, for instance, in Scotland at the moment, we're producing lots of left-backs that are at the top level, Andy Roberts and Kieran Tierney. But with the U.S. in that era, there was just if you were in goal, you were a safe pair of hands. If Casey was in goal, he was a safe pair of hands. How, why do you think that was the case? I think you would grow up with... American sports. We grow up with hand-eye coordination. We have the physical attributes to do it. You just need to be taught. Um, and then um, I also think back then it was easier for clubs to accept an American goalkeeper than an American outfield player. 
that makes sense. They, you know, so, well, okay, he's American. Yeah, but he's a goalkeeper. He's going to be good at catching things, you know, because mm. he's American and he's not really a footballer. He's a goalkeeper. <laughs> so they, uh, I, I think, I think a lot of that has had to, uh, or, or a lot of that played a part in it. Where do you think the United States can go in the decades to come? Because with the size of the nation, with the facilities that the U.S. has, you would think that in the next 20 or so years that the U.S. really could potentially go deep and win a World Cup. Yeah, um, we could. Uh, we, ha we have talent over here. Um, we still have some years for the, uh, the league to get well and truly on its feet. Um, it's still a it's still a better option quality wise to be over in Europe. Um, we're expanding uh, fast over here. When you expand so quickly, you also dilute the talent a little bit. But um, but it also then increases the notoriety in each of the venues. Um, and whenever there's a new franchise that that pops up, that's a whole new group of staff, a whole new group of academy players, a whole new group of people that are that are learning on how to become very very good at their profession so um we have you know weston mckinney's and tyler adams and christian pulisic's um guys like that that are outstanding players and can, can play and can compete against anybody in the world um you know so once uh, you know hopefully greg qualifies them for the next world cup um and then you never know what can happen um in the one-off games so uh, but uh, we're, we're not there. We're a ways off right now um, of consistently being one of the best teams in the world. But um, we have a population, we have financial backing, we have television contracts to come. Um, and I, I think the future is bright for the game. In terms of Brad Friedel, the coach, you were at the, the New England Revolution. Um, you've, you've since left the club, but what's your hopes for the future in coaching? Would you like to come back and coach in Europe? Would you like another opportunity in the MLS? What are your aims? Well, you never say never. Learning experience, for sure. Um, you know, there were, like most coaches that end up getting fired, you, you, you know, you'd hope that you'd have been back. You hope that you would have had uh, longer um, to implement the ideas to get players out the door and get players in the door that you wanted all that stuff. But, um, well, I'll, um, I'll be a little bit more choosy the next time if there is a next time. Um, you know, but, uh, but coaching, you know, coach, it was really enjoyable. Even the worst day of it, the most stressful day of it, really enjoyable. Um, and football is definitely in my blood. So yeah, who knows in this game, you never say never. Absolutely. A few quick fire ones to finish, Brad. Best players you've played with? Oh, lots. Um, best players. Uh, I mean, midfielders, Paul Lentz, two guy, um, I mean, Scotty Parker, uh, Ludley King, great, tremendous defender. Um, Kyle Walker, incredible right back. Um, Gareth Bale, Luka Modric, um, Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Andy Cole, Yorkie, two, or he said two guys, I think. Um, uh, Georgie Hodge at Galatasaray. Uh, um, hey, lots and lots and lots. I forgot, uh, you know, at, at uh, Villa, Ashley Young, Gareth Barry, James Milner, um, you know, all, all really talented. Uh, Martin Larson, defender. Not a very good trainer, but really good <laughs> on the match day. Um, no, lots of lots of lots of great players that I played with. We're really, really lucky. Toughest opponents? Toughest opponents: Thierry Henry, Alan Shearer, um, Dennis Bergkamp, uh, Gianfranco Zola. Um, uh, you know, again, then going into the Man United guys, Coley, and uh, when you played against them, Solskjaer's. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the strikers that made it more difficult for me, obviously. Um, uh, did I say Van, Van Nistelrooy? Teddy Sheringham, really good. Uh, Robbie Keane, when you played against them, very, very good. Um, yeah, again, uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, what a cannon on him. Patrick Berger, left foot. Ooh, I guess one of the most powerful that I've faced in training and playing against. Have you got a favorite ground that you played at? Internationally at uh, Stadio Azteca in Mexico City. Um, 
in the UK, um, I always enjoyed playing at Old Trafford, but not because I was in awe of Old Trafford, because we had some good results there and I supported Liverpool growing up. So I always liked the, I always liked it on that on that side of things. Was there ever a ground that you just, when you look back, you think I really hated playing there for whatever reason? You just didn't have good memories. Um, no, not, no, not really. I mean, Newcastle, great atmosphere to go up there. It was on. You know, some good results, some bad results up uh, up there. Um, uh, no, I, I, I think that that's one of the great things about English football is the grounds and the atmospheres are, are, are fantastic pretty much anywhere you go. And the last question, Brad, um, what advice would you give to any young footballer in the game now in the goalkeeping position? In the goalkeeping position? Um, uh, advice on a goalkeeping position the young kids one is don't be uh, don't be too discouraged by lack of playing time early on keep yourself as fit as humanly possible try to uh, become as strong and as flexible as humanly possible but most importantly make sure that you have a smile on your face each and every day that you're playing because if you're not you're playing it for the wrong reason Great advice, and I think that's something that so many players can can really learn from. Because, as I say, with yourself, to have that determination to to play every single game is something that I have to admit as a fan that I can get frustrated, as you've said when you were coaching as well. That players talk about wanting a rest because you just think, for me as a fan, I would, I would, I would give my right arm to play ten games, never mind the fifty that they get the chance to play at the top level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, that's just my. But, um that's just how I, I view it. Like everyone can is entitled to their opinions, but you know, the tired, the tired one, just, you know, I can see the stats. I could see when someone's tired. I can see if I need to pull them back in training sessions, you know, as a, as a coach, I get all that, but of course you play a 90 minute game or, you know, or even longer. Um, yeah. You're going to be tired. I get it. It's a physical, it's a physical sport, but you can also do your things to recover, to be fit for the next game. And, you know, if it's up to the coach, if the coach sees the fatigue and the coach pulls you out for fear of injury and performance, that's one thing. I just never understood the, oh, coach, I'm tired. I can't do the cool down today. What do you mean you can't do a recovery today? (laughs) How hard is it to do a recovery? You don't want to do the recovery because you're tired. You know, let's, let's let's be honest with one another. Brilliant. Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. All right. You got it, Callum. Take care. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a